Hello, Alma. Well, hello. How are you doing today, Iris? I am very good. How are you? Oh, well, I just got my booster shot this morning. And um, for those of you who, who's, who, where it's the first time here, let me just, I think we should do a little intro to say, because people might have no idea what, where they are. Welcome to Two Moms, No Fluff. We are Iris and Alma, and we talk about all things related to parenting kids with disabilities, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, today, our topic is going to be uh, mostly bad and ugly. So you're going to have to listen to that. <laughs> We're going to be talking about what it's like going into the community with our child with a disability. And uh, we're going to be telling kind of the, the, the not so great stories. However, we always want to give, you know, some, some positive stories, something that's really productive. So the next episode, I think we, we decided we're going to talk about how to, um, some positive stories about us going into the community. But today we're just kind of going to vent. Well, I, think we, I think we deserve that, right, Iris? Definitely. Oh my gosh, I so need the venting. <laughs> and venting is not a negative thing. Negative, uh, venting is about processing. It's about, you know, hoping for things to be better in the future and really thinking about how we want our lives to be in the future and what we can do to strategize to, to make things better in the future. But today... Today, we're just going to give you, you know, you might, some of these stories might not resonate with you, but some might. And if none of them do, then you're just a voyeur. You're just a yes. voyeur or a voyeuse. So enjoy. <laughs> but anyway, this morning, let's get back to this morning. Um, I got my booster shot today at the last second. Um, the positive thing about uh, one of my kids who was late for school again, and I had to drive her. Uh, <laughs> we won't mention any names, but because I was out of the house so early, because someone else was supposed to drive her this morning, because I was out of the house so early and drove this person, I won't, I, I know I already said her, but whatever. <laughs> um, so we all know who it is. But um, the good thing about that was that I was like, okay, you know what? Let me go get my booster because I tried to get it yesterday, but I couldn't because my child, I'll say, uh, called me early to pick them up from school. So I didn't have time to go, but I went this morning and I ran into the uh, manager of Essex County, New Jersey, where I live. Um, his name is Joey D, Joey, Joey DiVincenzo. And um for those of you who don't know, he um, was instrumental when Iris, the amazing advocate, uh, <laughs> uh, was advocating for more equipment that was universe, truly universally accessible in Bloomfield, New Jersey, where she used to live. Um, they did put in a lot of you know, what they thought was universal access um, equipment, but there wasn't quite enough. And this, you know, we'll talk about this in another episode, but it's always important to discuss what is actually truly universally accessible with people who have children and adults who need universally accessible equipment because um, the ADA recommends certain things that are not actually 100% fully accessible to 100% of the population. So Correct. Um, Iris, I want to, you know, as always, commend you for your amazing advocacy. Before she moved from New Jersey, she really um, pushed for this and got other people to help her, um, got tons of signatures uh, on a petition to get more equipment. And I got to hand it to Essex County and Joey DiVincenzo, who was able to get this done. And we got more universally accessible equipment. But Iris then left town during COVID and moved away. 
Um, but she's doing it now in uh, the town that she lives in in Michigan. So she is just spreading the universal, universally accessible equipment and playgrounds wherever she plants her new roots. So thank yes. you, Iris. And just so you know, Joey D said, boy, she is a great advocate. I said, I felt like I was like dropping names. I was like, I'm friends with Iris. Remember Iris who helped get the equipment done? And he said, oh, I remember her. She was an amazing advocate and I would have done the same thing for my kids. So that is a good story that we're starting out <laughs> today. That is um, a good story. I am sure the man is traumatized. I don't think it happens to him every day that someone screams and yells at him in public. So well, uh, sometimes we have, done. yes, it got the job done. And I have to give it to him that they put like so much more money into that park after it was already done. And, yeah. uh, and it was made like a dream playground for wheelchair users. So that's great. And the ADA, as you just mentioned, is just a minimum standard for accessibility. Mm -hmm. This is like a starting point. It's not like the end of the means. Like, like we yeah. really need to remember that. And uh, there's so much more that needs to be done in terms of accessibility that uh, hopefully this uh, podcast would help bring it to the forefront of some people that wouldn't think about it on a normal basis and we mm -hmm. can kind of raise uh, awareness like this yeah well so this is you know and this is a perfect segue into what we're going to be talking about about going into the community you wanted to bring your child into the community by bringing her to a playground. She shows up in the playground and what happens when they had finished the playground promising you that it was universally accessible? What happened? Correct. You tell it's, the rest? Not. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I basically, I think that we can uh, probably do another separate <laughs> episode just on the playground and accessibility in general. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, I think what added an insult to injury is that the playground was literally in front of our house. They mm -hmm. called it an all access playground mm -hmm. and my daughter couldn't do anything there. <laughs> so oh, that was, it was uh, painful, very it was painful. painful. So I was like, uh, this I can't live with and I must uh, kind of advocate and change. But um, basically, I think today, uh, if if you're up to it, I would uh, talk about not how environment affects our participation, but how people can mm -hmm. sometimes rub us the wrong way yes. with um, <laughs> some, some interesting stories. I think that the value in us sharing our personal stories is that other moms in a similar situation were in similar positions as well. And mm -hmm. it, sometimes it's so nice to hear that another person is going through a similar experience yeah. And uh, in contrary to you, Alma, that always have your head connected to the rest of your body, I tend to get a brain freeze every single time that people shock me with their reactions to my daughter, to our family. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wish like, I could like reverse, rewind and go back and tell them what I really think about them, but I don't. <laughs> and uh, one of the incidents that I kind of sort of managed to actually say something to someone mm -hmm. was uh, when, when my daughter was really young, I used to travel a lot with her for therapy. So we would like find ourselves in hotels and stuff on, my, on our own. And mm -hmm. uh, when she was small enough, instead of like going with a wheelchair, I would take a McLaren stroller for everyone who's familiar because it's an umbrella stroller. It folds really small and it's kind mm -hmm. of doable. 
And as I was like walking around a, a kind of in a hotel breakfast bar, looking for plastic flavor eggs and <laughs> other things to kind of feed her and myself breakfast, I'm kind of pushing the stroller with one hand and getting the food with the other. And I sit down with her and I need to kind of feed her in the, in the stroller. And this person shows up out of nowhere and he looks at me and tells me, are you going to keep her in a stroller until she's 18? Ay, ay, ay. So, oh, Iris. I wish I could go back there and, you know, give you yes. a big hug or punch that person in the face. Yeah. <laughs> but I think so the only thing I could come up with is like, sir, this child has a brain injury. She's probably going to stay in the wheelchair until she's 18 and more. And he just left the scene. Did you say that? <laughs> yes. Oh, you wish you said that. No, no, I, I did. I did say oh that. Oh my gosh. Then why do so, you need to rewind and go back? Yeah, because I had some more educational <laughs> stuff to say in retrospect, but yes. uh, usually that doesn't happen. This is my story of like actually getting my act together. The rest of my stories are pretty miserable. But uh, oh. yes, it's well, this, kind of I, like. I, sorry, I, I just want to. I just want to qualify before we even go any further. I think that so many people. I don't want to blame people. I, you know, because it, it, I could go on blaming people and being angry and being mad. And I think a lot of us can be like that. I think that, uh, that what we can do is channel our, our frustration and our sadness and our fear and our shock when those kinds of things happen and really channel them into education. And we can't, you know, for so many of us, we're so sick and tired, sick and tired of having to educate everyone. But the truth is that society is not at a place where people know what to say, know what to do. And they, a lot of people have a very narrow idea of what's appropriate, sad exactly. to say. And, you know, as much, you know, it's definitely the higher road. It's really hard to take that higher road when we are so, because it, it pains us when that kind of stuff happens. It is like a punch in the stomach and to gather, to muster all of your strength, to be able to educate people instead it takes a lot of energy, but I will say that over time, as I'm sure you can agree and attest to Iris and all of you out there who have kids who are a little bit older, eventually it's not as upsetting, not as, a, as shocking, sort of because we get desensitized to it because it happens so often. But if we can muster the energy to, if we're in a good place and we're not as stressed out as we you know, can be, to educate someone, say, you know, I have to be honest with you. I mean, I think that a way to really get that person <clears throat> to really never forget that interaction would be what, what, what would be, I mean, I have my own ideas, but you tell me what you, what you, what you, could you say to that person so that they never forget so and learn something? I think actually that person was the only person that I kind of managed to put in their place about mm -hmm. uh, in general, I can give you a whole bunch of stories like that, or like us sitting in a restaurant with uh, our children and someone coming to ask and asking in front of our children, what is wrong with her pointing at my daughter? Oh. Uh, another example, like, and I'm like, I didn't say it, but I'm like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> or what, what, what disease that she, does she have? And I'm like, she doesn't have any disease. She's healthy, which is what my husband actually managed to say one day to someone. But my other reaction in my brain, because I'm such a rude person, my internal person, <laughs> right? I was like, she, uh, I don't know which disease she has, but it's contagious. So just move away. <laughs> but or to say, oh, I was going to ask you the same thing. What <laughs> disease do you have? 
Yeah, but at the Again, end of the day... Again, these were internal, these were yes, internal yes, yes. Uh, monologues. Exactly. But at the end of the day, what I really think, Alma, is at the root of this, is that well, kind of maybe like gestalt psychology, people see a phenomenon that they are not familiar with, and mm -hmm. they try to name it or to make sense of it for yes. themselves. Yes. And I have a general rule of thumb. If you see something out in the community that seems abnormal to you, mm -hmm. odd in such a way, or doesn't really fit the stance, I don't know how to say it in English, but at the end of the day, give the person the benefit of the doubt and instead mm -hmm. of judging, accept. And instead of judging, try to appreciate and try to understand and be compassionate. And if there is a child in a store that you visit and that throwing, that's throwing a tantrum that is totally not age appropriate, instead mm -hmm. of judging the parent and like going around with your, you know, <laughs> uh, showing your disrespect to how she kind of, I guess, uh, educates or disciplines her child, understand mm -hmm. that if it's not a regular or a, a scene that you would see normally, there's probably something behind there that you don't know, that you don't yeah. understand. And be compassionate. Just if you can, maybe offer something to help. But if you can't, mm -hmm. just let them be and forgive you know we are all dealing with so many things and some of it uh, i'm sorry we can't explain to you right here right now but just let us be yeah and it's exhausting to have to be you know again this is something that um happens all the time with parents of kids with disabilities and as we've mentioned before the idea that um that we you know Oftentimes we have a lot of stress and, and, and we have our own baggage or our own histories that bring us to the present moment. And so it, we might still be in tremendous pain um, or feeling grief about um, something that just happened or that, you know, getting a diagnosis for our child. And again, it has nothing to do with our child. This really has to do with how society deals with with people who are different. So I don't want to, you know, we never want to blame the child for having a disability or make judgments about our own kids and, you know, say, you've caused me all this pain. You are, you, you know, you're the reason for my grief. It's really when we dig deeper, so much of our feelings uh, um, when we're upset are about the fact that we are all othered, that we are all being treated differently. And that doesn't feel good. Even if people are being nice about us, being different, it doesn't feel good to be different in our society. And I wish that, you know, the celebrate difference uh, buttons that I remember coming out in the 90s when I was our 80s, or I, I, I just remember that was a big thing. And then people put the kibosh on celebrate difference. They thought it was, I don't know, not politically correct. I don't know. But why can't we celebrate difference? There's so many amazing things about our kids. Um, but when these things happen, it's such a societal shift that needs to happen where people it's not so strange to see somebody who behaves in a different way than your child. There should be no negative judgment on it. It should simply be like, oh, that's different from, from me. So let me give let me give some stories. So something that I used to have to do in the early days, and I didn't I should qualify that. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't, I didn't have to bring my uh, son out when he had a feeding tube and when I was pumping um, for milk when he was an infant. Um, but I did. I did it in front of other people because I 
as an individual did not want to be isolated. It was so important for me to get out into the community, whereas a lot of other people might have only um, fed their child through a feeding tube in the privacy of their own home where there was no one there. I, I was determined to, as much as possible, not have my life be, you know, my activities be hindered by the fact that every few hours I had to feed through a feeding tube or I had to pump, you know, having my breasts exposed, you know, covered with the with suction uh, cups, but that I was going to go out to friends' houses. I was going to, you know, I had other children. I wanted to go take them on play dates with other people. And from day one, I was very open about the feeding tube. Not everybody's like that. And no judgment here, but just for my own personality, I needed to get outside. So I made that decision uh, very early on. So I was sort of, you know, expecting people to look at me and to, you know, if I were in a waiting room or something to, when I was feeding my kid, um, sometimes people did stare and I felt like they stared a little too long. And, um, uh, you know, I think in those very early days, I didn't say anything, but it upset me that they were staring, even though I was out, you know, in the open. So, you know, going back, maybe I, maybe, you know, in retrospect, I could have said, you know, are you wondering why I'm doing this or you know for me i could have said that or it was perfectly fine that i didn't say anything but um i think it is important for people to know that it's not polite it's not really polite to stare and it makes these are adults i'm talking about not children who were staring um to let them know that you know you know even you know if you feel comfortable saying something like you know it, it's making me a little uncomfortable that you're staring if you have a question you know i'm happy to answer it um but this is my child and uh, I'm feeding, I'm simply feeding my child. So there, there are myriad, you know, responses you could have to somebody behaving that way. And it depends completely on your own comfort level. But that was something that did bother me that people would stare, even though, you know, when I was out in the public and some people might've said, well, if you don't want people staring, don't go out in the, don't go outside. But I, it's the same thing I feel about breastfeeding. The, our kids have every right to be fed. They need to be fed and they, and we have every right to do it wherever we want. It's, you know, do I tell you, don't eat that McDonald's hamburger in front of me? You know, it's offensive or <laughs> it's weird. So I'm going to stare at you. No, our child needs to be fed. Uh, I, I have so many stories. I don't even know where to go. Do you have another yeah. one, Iris, that you yeah, want to Yeah, of course. I, I actually, first of all, definitely uh, the nursing and breastfeeding, it's a, a, an issue by itself, but uh, people in general, really do tend to stare when they see something that is a bit out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I actually have a story of how um, my daughter, when she was uh, about five, she got her first power wheelchair. It was like a big permobile uh, K450. It's a huge pink chair that she got. And by itself, it attracts a lot of attention. Now add to that, that there was like a tiny kind of a seat behind that we used to pluck my son or sometimes other kid at the back of it. There is a service dog attached to that uh, wheelchair. And then my daughter, when she's excited, she's constantly waving her hands and legs. And when she's happy, she also makes these like, I don't know, like grunting sounds and uh, wandering around driving with her head, which people also can't understand how she's driving because they don't see her hands touching anything. So it attracts the movement, the colors, the sound. It oh, attracts yeah. a lot of attention. I've how seen it, people. And it is, it's like a, it's like a, a, a party on wheels, you know, <laughs> with an entourage. <laughs> yes. So one day we were at a museum and uh, 
the, the person at the back of the chair wasn't my son, it was uh, uh, their cousin. She was like driving uh, behind my daughter and she was about six. And she was like starting to say out loud, looking at people, people, why are you looking at us? Why is everybody staring? Why are you looking at us? And they, she That's started great. reflecting to people that, you know, I, she was not used to the attention. My right. children kind of grew up with this and they didn't yeah. even have the screen to kind of verbalize the experience. But I, I remember that day and I remember that people were like, oh, okay, she's calling us to order and, and stop, yeah. stop staring and, and turned around. But uh, it is, the staring is an interesting phenomena. And it's also, sometimes I, I envision myself like putting a camera uh, on my daughter's wheelchair and, and recording the gaze, the people like, oh, wow, like, that would be so it's, interesting. It's just, uh, it's so bizarre. Sometimes I walk like a few meters behind her and I'm just like, wow, it, it's, yeah. it's a phenomenon. It's just uh, human yes. nature. And mm -hmm. both of us, because we're also kind of professionals in the field, we know how to educate, how to share knowledge, how to advocate and all that. But still, when we're in the mother's shoes, we mm -hmm. forget all of that. And we're really emotional about it. Yeah. And, uh, it's, yes. it's an interesting situation. It can push a lot of buttons. It can bring, you know, we're just living. We're just, you know, living in the world with our families. And this is the norm for us. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, the negative side of being a celebrity. It's like, stop looking at me, you know, Lee, I just want to be anonymous. I just, you know, we, we are just a family um, and we want to fit in, you know, we just want to be a part of, a part of the, the world. And when those things happen, it's a constant reminder that we're different. And I guess we can reframe it and, and look at every opportunity as an opportunity to educate, you know, just simply by being out in the world. Um, but that gets exhausting. It really gets exhausting. So please take, you know, have some compassion. I was going to say take pity, but no, do not take pity on us because <laughs> we do not need your pity. We just need to be in the world. And we are a family that might seem a little different from your family, but that's, you know, just be conscious. You know, it's important for people to be conscious of, of not making people feel uncomfortable and different. Um, another story that I have that actually doesn't even include my son being present, um, but going out into the community, just as the individuals, the individuals who we are with the experiences we've had, um, I'm gonna talk about when, um, when my niece was with us, we, I remember we were in a toy store and I was with, uh, I don't even remember, a couple of my kids and my niece and we were on the line for the toy store and there, was a, uh, there were a couple of women in front of me who were um, talking with each other. And one of the women was talking about an experience she had and she literally, she was a grown woman and she literally just, threw out the R word and said, you know, she was talking about an, something that happened to her and she, and she was telling her friends something like, yeah. So I was like, what are you, the R word? And I stood there and again, my son wasn't there who has the disability, but I think an, uh, one or two of my other kids were there and my niece was there who was a teenager at the time. And, uh, or maybe even in her 20s. And she looked at me and she says, you have to say something. Yeah. And I saw at that moment that it was, real, it was really important for me to say something because 
they were looking to me, these, my, you know, my niece was looking to me as someone to educate. And, you know, she was, I guess, too young and too uncomfortable to do it herself, but she was looking to me and I had a responsibility to her and to people in general um, to educate. So as uncomfortable as it was, because I don't like to make people feel uncomfortable, you know, but so many emotions were going through me at that time. I was angry. I was, you know, I, I had judgments about this woman thinking like, oh my God, like how juvenile that this is a grown woman using this. But sad to say, this is a word that people grew up with and there are, you know, so many responses. Oh, I didn't mean it in that way. I just meant that blah, blah, blah. We all know that response, but it is unacceptable to use that word at all. It, um, unless you're talking about an actual, um, you know, term like mental retardation. Um, and some people don't even like using that word, those two words, but um, I felt a responsibility. So I had to say to this woman, and, it, and I said it in a very nice way. And again, had my son been there, so I want to point out that we're going to be able to have different, feel differently about giving a response depending on the situation. So because my son wasn't there, I didn't have as much going on in my head be, to, because I would have also had the added concern of him feeling bad if I had a conversation, because I would have thought, okay, maybe he didn't hear them say that, maybe I should just be quiet. But because he wasn't there, and I had the added you know, <laughs> uh, responsibility of, of my niece being there, at, saying to me, like, I need you to do this, is what she was really saying, because this is important, and she was right. I said to the woman, I'm sorry to interrupt, um, but I have a son who actually is mentally retarded. And that word is really offensive. And oh boy, did she, she, her face turn bright red. She, I can assure you that that woman will probably never, ever use that term again. I said it in a, I said the truth. I, I educated her. Um, that this was a hurtful word. And, you know, of course she immediately came back and said, I am so sorry. You know, she could have said, I didn't mean it that way. And I thought she didn't make any excuses, which I appreciated and respected. She just said, I'm really sorry. Um, and I said, yeah, please, you know, just, you know, I, I just educated, that's all I did. Yeah. Um, but to make it personal, to say my son, you know, that is directly offensive to me. My son has this. Was it felt very empowering for me to be able to say that, to be able to say it calmly. And I, you know, who knows if she ever said it again, but if she ever said it again, I feel like it would be an accident for her to say it again. And she would catch herself and, and not, you know, really make an effort. That's, that's my thought, my hope, my dream that when we have these conversations with people that they really will take it in. But that was something that, you know, was me going into the community, even though my child wasn't with me, he's with me in my head and with my experience. So that, that I thought was a significant one. Yeah. I, I, I know this is like, this is so nice, the story, because it's just a word, a mm -hmm. small word that triggers so many emotions yes. that, that can alienate, like that can hurt so badly. And I know that uh, again, my, uh, my personal experience when something like that happens, it's like, I can feel my heart racing and I'm oh, like, yeah. what am I supposed to say? And I'm just like the emotion. If yes. I was there to give a workshop about, you know, terminology and disability rights and all that, mm -hmm. I would be somewhere else with my brain and my body. Exactly. But when it hits so close to home, you kind of lose yourself to 
to just the experience of actually living living the situation yeah and, and uh, it's out of the blue you're you're just absolutely not expecting it like you said if you're doing a presentation you're primed to be calm and to educate but when it just comes out of nowhere you're blindsided um which might not even be a PC term. I have to look into that. Um, <laughs> so I apologize if that, you know, I might've said something wrong just now. Um, but it is something that, that it's like a sucker punch, you know, comes out of nowhere. And um, we kind of lose the ability to, to reason sometimes and to do, you know, to be our, at our, be, you know, our best selves. Yes. And sometimes- and To forgive ourselves you... for that. Correct. If... And sometimes, you know, the opportunity might be there. A lot of times I, I really, I, I, I feel that the person really is interested to understand what is going yes. on with our child because they're curious. I, mm -hmm. I, I noticed that most of those questions of, of uh, what is she suffering from? She's not yes. suffering. We had a fabulous yeah. day. We're enjoying our meal. Mm -hmm. Like it, they come from people that are a bit older, um, a generation or two over. And, uh, and then... Uh, they just don't know any better but yeah. my daughter is there next to me how can yeah. i tell them what is wrong with mm -hmm. her she lives in a perfect world she is perfect mm -hmm. as she is we did all the efforts that we could as parents to give her the sense that she is just wonderful exactly mm -hmm. the way she is and that there is nothing wrong with her because there is nothing wrong with her she's mm -hmm. different but there's nothing wrong with her exactly and in our house in our family she is perfect. The disability kind of does not exist between mm -hmm. our four walls. Right. It's only when we step outside of the house that Absolutely. suddenly the world is not prepared for this show. No. And um, no. it's and it's, the sad thing is that the sad thing is that um, when we you know a lot some people that stress is is so overwhelming the, the even the thought of going outside it's so daunting to deal with that that a lot of people end up staying home and not exposing their children to the world i mean if, if i just think about my childhood growing up in the 80s and the 70s you know when i was very little um you did not see people with disabilities and the only times that i did start seeing people with significant disabilities was um, in middle school. I remember with that we called junior high school back then, kids who were in our school who were literally all sequestered to the basement um, and you only saw them once in a while leaving the school with other people. So they were, it was basically telling you that these are people who cannot be um, included in a general population, you know, in the middle of New York City. And it just that you would think would be such a progressive place, but even, you know, as far into, you know, the early eighties, I remember seeing those kids and I didn't, I, I just remember feeling sorry for them. And because I never got a chance to see them or talk to them. So I felt bad for them and our kids don't need to be pitied, you know, and I, you know, I, that was society. That was the way things were structured back then. It didn't have to do with um, me being a bad, condescending, patronizing person. It had to do with um, society doesn't allow us to, to intermingle with people who are different. And it's so important that we do expose our kids to the world because 
they need to learn. And the only way they're going to learn, unfortunately, is through school, through education, through, you know, seeing people, through reading books about people who are different, about having people who are different in the workplace. That's the only way it's going to change. But unfortunately, for now, a lot of the work falls on us. When we all already have so much to deal with, we, you know, emotionally and practically, we're put in a position that can get really frustrating for us to constantly have to educate everyone else. And it is tough. It's tough, but it's necessary. And um, it does get easier. People out there with, you know, who are, if you're just, if your child is just recently diagnosed or you're, you, you know, you're, you're at the beginning of your journey, it does get easier. And mostly because we're getting desensitized to it, but it, it gets easier and our responses to people, we have more practice, um, but it can still be, you know, it is, it is tough sometimes if you're not mentally prepared for it coming out of nowhere. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, our, our experiences in our childhood or teenage years are fairly similar. Obviously, um, you know, I also grew up in the 80s and, and uh, I remember how it was and uh, segregation was the name of the game back then. Mm -hmm. It's just really yeah. sad. And we see the residual effect of it uh, right now. And the inclusion yes. is a, a very nice title, but the ignorance uh, is, is still out there. And mm -hmm. no matter what, whether you have a child with an invisible disability or you're in a situation like mine that when we go out, it's like a neon sign, look at us, look at us. It's just, yes. uh, you know, it's just, uh, you will be facing in one way or another situation in which society is hugging you with poison ivy. It's just, yes. it's really hard. And uh, you need to be prepared. I think that's mm -hmm. in, in a way, you know, when I was working as a career counselor, I used to teach people how to do their elevator spiel like knowing the one the pitch, one minute yep. yeah sentence in which they kind of answer questions and when uh, during um I guess the first few years I slowly developed a set of answers to different kids in different ages explaining mm -hmm. the situation and what what's the what's the car <laughs> what's that car why is she driving a car and yeah. etc and and kind of normalizing our appearance you know uh, yeah. because it it raised a lot of questions yeah. but on the same token this is you know what what we do what you do mm -hmm. what i do and i think what we also love about each other it's just this is our core it's now out there we are mm -hmm. out there we are advocating we are mm -hmm. making our families our children be seen we yes. it, we strive to always include them to make activities that were not meant to be inclusive inclusive and, and be out there because just by being there with our mm -hmm. families, we show the world, A, how you parent a child yes. with special needs or with this mm -hmm. disability, and B, how, how they are in the environment. They can mm -hmm. also participate. And maybe it's different, like we'll be in an art class in the museum and all the kids would be painting with their hands. But my daughter would hold a, you know, a, a stylus or a paintbrush mm -hmm. in her mouth. Mm -hmm. And a few minutes later, you'll see that there are four other children trying it, you know, to hold a yeah. paintbrush in their mouth. And they're yeah. like, first, they're imitating just for fun. And then they also realize how incredibly difficult it is to do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if, if we were not there, they couldn't even, I think, think about the possibility exactly. of sticking a paintbrush in their mouth. And it's making just, art with it and making not just sticking a paintbrush in there, making yeah. art with it. It ain't easy. And it she doesn't. Easy, no. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, at the end of the day, like 
another story I have to because it's related Please. you were saying like we, we want to go out in the community and, and do do a good thing and educate mm-hmm. and uh, share the knowledge and and make other people friends of the disability community mm-hmm. so uh, I'll give you an example like another glorious fail okay because we love mm-hmm. those so That's I here. go with my kids to um, the Crayola factory you probably are familiar we used to have a mm-hmm. membership but uh, one time we landed there in a really busy day I think you shouldn't go on weekends which no. Uh, us as homeschooling family, I should know better than showing up in a museum in a weekend, but never mind, we did. And then you discover that there's other people in the museum and there's lots of families with kids mm-hmm. because usually the kids are like two to eight, I think that's yes. the age group that they aim towards. Yeah. And Alma, I don't know if you're aware, but kids at that age, they really like dogs and every family, oh, yeah. they think that their child is special because they really like dogs. So we're in the lobby, we show our membership cards, and for 20 minutes, we can't move forward because every step we take, someone shows up, oh, my daughter really likes dogs, can she pet your service dog, my son? And eventually I'm just like, I have two kids, we want to go in, like, yeah. that's enough, yeah. enough is enough, and I'm like, no, you can't pet the dog, it's a working dog. He'll <laughs> <Don't> bite you. <laughs> Leave us alone. And, and I start really barking at people, just let us go. It was yeah. incredible, but it's just... It's like the paparazzi. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm, I'm there to kind of like be the good mom and explaining, but at the end of the day, we, we can't, I can't too accommodate much. all the children, and I know that they all have dogs. <laughs> anyway so so at yeah. the end of the day sometimes you are there you're with good intentions you're trying right. to be the advocate and the good person but it does, just doesn't work out I'm sorry and it's a beautiful thing that the kids uh are not afraid of your daughter in the wheelchair they're using the wheelchair that they're coming to you as like oh you have a cute dog I'm gonna pet your dog so I would imagine that you'd also want to be accommodating that and because it's a way for them to be exposed to your daughter and for your daughter to be exposed to other kids but it's hindering your ability to do what you want to do as a family so there are probably a lot of mixed emotions there too which makes it stressful it's like everything's everything can be laden with stress you know so it's all about getting things you know getting things to be mellower um and i just you know something that you said reminded me of the fact that things change over time so in the beginning like and and the fact that your your child's disability is very obvious to the world she has cerebral palsy she uses a wheelchair my son's disability is is invisible you know until somebody starts talking to him a little bit more they're like hmm, you know what's going on here um so for a long time um, you know, after the feeding tube and the, the the pumping, you know, for milk in public, I had a big window where people didn't know, or a decent sized window, that there was, you know, anything going on because he would he looked like a typical neurotypical child, and he, we would go places, um, and it was it felt good for me to like not have to say anything, and I could just be like everybody else, um, in the community. Sometimes people out us in the community. And uh, I remember a very, it was very painful for me. And again, this is, these are stages that we go through with acceptance. So, you know, we're talking now about the fact that we're out there and we're educating. I did not start out that way. And I know that a lot of people do not start out that way. There's a lot of, um, you know, unfortunately, there's a, there's a lot of fear, you know, in the, it, I think that so much of this has to do with the, um, uh, not wanting to feel isolated, you know, so much of so much of the fear comes from worrying that w- 
we as individuals are going to be shunned. Our families are going to be, you know, not included. There's a fear of isolation. And at least for me, that was such a big part of this in in the beginning for me, you know, and I had gone to therapy right after um, my son was born uh, because I was, I was traumatized um, because I was, I read up on his syndrome and I was terrified of our future because it was written out in such a terrifying way, which I still am so angry about. Um, it's changed a little bit since he was born, but I was so afraid and I was so afraid that we were never going to be able to socialize. So I had, you know, a couple of years where I was very quiet about his disability. I, I, I would allow people to know that he had, um, a disability later on, but when I didn't have to, I kind of enjoyed that time. Um, and I remember the therapist saying, when you have a child with a disability, it's very common for it to feel like a narcissistic injury, that there's something wrong with you. And this is, this is again, not about our kids. This is about society and how society views disability. And we have to be part of the change. But in the beginning, for a lot of people, that's not where, we're, where our head is. We're still in the phase of being afraid um, for people to know our, our private business. So I remember I took my son to a music class when he was very little and he was behaving like all the other kids his age. And, um, you know, kids who weren't talking yet and weren't walking yet. And I remember somebody openly talking with me in the music class about him being in the special needs pre-K in town. And I will bet that nobody even heard what she was saying. I will bet that, um, you know, even if they were there, they didn't even know what it was called. So they wouldn't have even known if they did hear her. And I wanted to vomit when this happened. I remember feeling like I've been outed and my son's been outed and they're gonna think about him differently. They're gonna think about me differently. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that now, but I shouldn't be embarrassed because this is part of the journey, you know, and this is part of everyone's, you know, or I don't want to say everyone's journey, some people's journey. There is this, you know, it takes a while to get adjusted to our new normal. And again, this has nothing to do with our children. This has to do with society and how, um, you know, we're made to feel how disability is so, is such a a charged topic for people that it's unacceptable, that it's embarrassing, and it should not be that way. But we can't help but take that in when, when, or when we're expecting to have, you know, a typical, uh, neurotypical child, and we don't. So um, that being said, I eventually did talk to the person who said that, because I sort of, have a big mouth. <laughs> I I can't keep things quiet sometimes. So I did take a pause. I didn't say anything at the moment, but I did bring it up eventually to the person um, how I really, and I was honest. I said, I don't want people to know. Like, I just, I don't want people to know. I want, I don't want people to think differently because my big fear was that if they looked online at what he had, and she didn't mention his syndrome or anything, but I was so terrified that if people looked online and read about his syndrome, that they would want nothing to do with us. And, um, or they would think about us in a different way. And I didn't want to be othered and I didn't want my son to be othered. So that was, uh, that was, that was something that has always stuck in my mind. And he was probably like one and a half at the time. And I still remember that with tremendous clarity, how that felt. Um, something else I want to mention, I, I knew that we were going to be talking about going into the community today. So I put on once in a while, I put on this necklace before I go out. You know, I, I have so much jewelry, so many things that I get from yard sales and 
and thrift shops that because depending on my mood, I put on something different. This was something that I actually bought new. Um, it was for a fundraiser. A- <laughs> uh, can you believe it? I actually <laughs> bought something, but, but I bought it for, because it was a fundraiser. It's a silver piece of jewelry that somebody created that says live life full. And I put in, it's for my son's syndrome um, to raise money for, to alleviate uh, some of the features of Prader-Willi syndrome. And I have it on a chain with a, something that I got from somebody gave to everyone in my uh, CrossFit class when I used to do CrossFit. And it's so faded now that I can't even see what it says, but it says something like you, you know, uh, weakness is a choice. Weakness is a choice, something like that. So I really can't read it at this point. Yeah, it says weakness is a choice. And I wear it on this necklace because it's sort of, you know, once I leave the house, sometimes I'm like, I'm feeling like a badass today. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be uh, supporting my son's disability. I'm going to go out in the world. So it's something physical that I put on um, when I go to certain events um, that it makes me feel like proud of being an advocate. And when I'm in that headspace, to remember to put it on. It helps me. It's like a little, ta- you know, talisman or a little, uh, you know, good luck charm or it's just something that provides support for me. And um, I recommend that, you know, even if it's just taking a pause before you go out of the house and bracing yourself for, all right, somebody might say something. What am I going to say if if they say something or if they're staring at my son because he's talking really loudly or he is, Um, My son has a tendency to stare too long at, you know, he's interested in something and he doesn't have that self-awareness that, you know, that's staring at someone if you're interested. He does the same thing. So it's kind of funny that he does what I don't like when other people do that to him. He does that to other people. The irony. The irony. And then in turn, they'll stare back at him for longer. And then I'm, and then my heart starts racing and I have to say to him like, you know, please stop, you know, don't stare at them like, don't stare. You know, you're staring. I just give him that self-awareness that he doesn't know, but people are very put off by that. They don't, you know, they, they're like, what's, you know, I can see them mumbling to their friend. I see this all the time with young teens. They'll like talk to him, talk to their friend about my son because my son is looking at them for a long time. Um, these are really difficult situations that cause, you know, it's not just going out for a walk or going to the movies, you know, more times than not, you're going to run into some of these situations and it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to always, you know, have to brace yourself for these kinds of interactions, but it's what we do, Iris. It's what we do. Yes. And, uh, I think one of the, uh, points that are important because we have to kind of summarize for today is that we weren't born such great advocates oh, <laughs> I mean, no. we had to learn how to do it and uh, I, I know that it's um, it, it's kind of really an acquired skill and practice yes. does make perfect I think mm-hmm. eventually but um, not perfect perfect is the enemy of the good always remember <laughs> yes oh, I need to learn <laughs> we're never gonna be perfect Alma we're but, gonna do best we're not gonna ever be perfect but uh yeah except it's just, for your hair which is so shiny so perfectly shiny always and i still don't know how you do it but anyway get back to what you were saying i shampoo it every day alma <laughs> oh my gosh wow what that's a, you know that's what we, i know <laughs> we curly haired people we do we have to brush uh wash our hair you know believe it or not like once a week to make oh, really? it yeah because it's when you have curly hair you need the natural oils so Oh you know, gosh. you learn something new every day, people. 
I am telling you. Okay, this was a very educational <laughs> segment, but at the end of the day, I just like uh, would love, would love to hear other stories from other moms because I don't know what is so comforting about hearing the suffering <laughs> of others, but there I is know. something comforting about it. That's and true. also more importantly, please share success stories because yes. uh, still, even this late in the game, uh, we need tricks and uh, some hidden, I guess, strategies of how to deal with the audience that <laughs> accompanies yes. our life. And yeah. um, Alma, thank you again for your amazing friendship and for sharing your amazing stories about your life and family. Right back at you, my friend, right back thank at you. you. And we, we, we'll, we promise that we will be doing a show, a podcast about positive experiences we've had in the community. We don't want you to think we're these negative, these old negative ladies who are just complaining all the time. Like we have to make room for the venting, but we also have to make room to show appreciation and gratitude um, for people who who are doing things that are helping us in our in our journey and helping helping everyone else. Because helping us, um, we don't need, you know, I shouldn't use the word help, that we all need to learn how to uh, be with one another in society. And we, we might need help too. And we're gonna actually talk about that in a future episode, how within the disability community, we, all, we also need to learn how to talk to other parents of kids with disabilities. So on that note, have a great week. Iris, Thank you're you the so best. much. Bye, you you're the best Bye. too. Bye. <laughs> Bye. For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com. Thank you.